This episode, we're going to be talking about Meddling Kids by Edgar Cantero. I I would say that Meddling Kids is I'm going to limit it at I'm going to limit it to inspired by uh, old Scooby Doo cartoons. I would say the basic premise is Scooby Doo, but the last one was real and fucked everyone up real bad. I don't know. Is that is that fair? Yeah, yeah. I think that that kind of tracks for like the the backstory premise. Yeah. So the the premise of the book is that the the set of protagonists used to be a kind of summer detectives club as as you have um in a small town out in oregon um i think so yeah and so in their in their last case something bad happened that didn't really get picked up treated mostly as business as usual but the kids who were there know that there was something else uh and after that sort of went about their lives grew up and 10 years later they get back together to go back and reinvestigate this case and sort of face their fears and deal with the the ramifications of what they know that they saw. Um, I think I feel like face their fears is a little mild. It's more like face their PTSD because they are really fucked up. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I, I think that that's actually something that I, I think Cantero does really well is like actually sort of give things that it, that at least feel like more realistic responses to that kind of trauma than I think a lot of places that sort of deal with like, and then something terrible happened to you. And I feel like usually when you read that kind of story, you sort of get sort of all along the spectrum. You've got like the character who just like seems totally fine. And then you've got characters who really go like sort of way, way far down. And not that you, you can't have those responses, but I feel like it's relatively uncommon to have people respond to that by seeking normalcy, but being unable to find it or like acting out in sort of believable ways that actual people act out in, as opposed to something that feels very over the top and dramatic. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. Thank you. That's an uncommon word that is easy (laughs) to forget because anyway, um, yeah, that feel very dramatic. I feel like I, I really liked in this that generally the responses were, it, they felt very human, you know? Yeah, I, I agree. So this book is, you know, uh, it, it kind of fluctuates between two parts Scooby-Doo, one part Lovecraft, and two parts Lovecraft, one part Scooby-Doo. Um, never 50-50. It's always, it's always two to one. So uh, I think that uh, I, there were, there were parts of it that I enjoyed. Um, that sort of blending of the two things and parts where it was not so successful, uh, parts that were pretty campy and, uh, parts that were actually like genuinely really good. Um, I don't, I don't think that, uh, Cantero was 100% successful in the blending of the Scooby-Doo elements and the Lovecraft elements, but I think that there was definitely like... (sighs) There were definitely, like, fun moments, and I think that there were fun moments happened fairly frequently. Yeah, there definitely were times when I felt that it was similar to reading fan fiction that was, like, a crossover between Lovecraft and Scooby-Doo. Like, when you go into the crossover section of fanfiction.net. Yep. Um, which isn't necessarily, and I was thinking about this recently also, like, what does it mean when we say something reads like fan fiction? Like, are we saying like the style is a little bit basic? Are we saying that like, it just, it doesn't feel official for some reason? What makes something feel official or not? And I, I never really came to a concrete conclusion on that, but also to give some completely like arbitrary and useless context for how this book came up, I was... I had a concussion and I was re- re- only listening to audiobooks because I couldn't do anything else. And one reason, I mean, the way, way I originally found this because I was looking at a list of books that are like, oh, books to read if you like Stranger Things. Um, and this is, you know, it's not 100% a match to that tone, I would say. But there are definitely some similar elements if you're just talking broadly about occult stuff. But then also I was ranking all the books I was reading as like, as um 
how gay they were. And this came in number two on my uh, list because that was all the content I wanted to consume for some reason when I was concussed. Number one was a Mercedes Lackey book, uh, Magic's Promise, and this was a strong number two. Nice. To the to the fan fiction thing, I think it, it's something that feels like it comes up more and, and more frequently as fan fiction seems to to gain a bit more social standing and less stigma. But I feel like this one in particular kind of jumps out that way because of how popular the, the AU and the crossover AU thing is in fanfiction, right? This, like, this feels so much more like it because it's, like... I, I mean, I don't want to say it's cribbing something because this has been around for forever, but it's definitely the current way in which it's popular is how often it's done in fanfiction. So I think that's... That was a big part of it, at least in my mind, for seeing it and, and feeling it like that way. I was going to say that things that uh, read like fan fiction to me uh, feel like they have a certain element of wish fulfillment about them um, in such a way that uh, things that happen feel easier than they do in quote unquote proper fiction. Just things, just the things you want to see happen just happen easier in things that feel like fan fiction, I guess. But I would agree that 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 there's certainly those kinds of like things that you want to see happen happen a little bit too easy in meddling kids. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, uh, actually, Corinne, I wanted to go back to something that that you were saying, sort of at, at the very beginning of this, um, and that was sort of when you were talking about the book is sort of like two parts Lovecraft, one part Scooby Doo, or two parts Scooby Doo, one part Lovecraft, and you know that it, there are moments when it's successful and moments where it's it's not as successful. I would say I generally really, really agree with that. But one thing that I thought was um, that the the moments where it is successful tend to be the moments where it doesn't feel so much Scooby-Doo plus Lovecraft. It feels like Edgar Cantero writing with inspiration from Scooby-Doo and Lovecraft. Because I, I agree that it could get really, really campy at times. And I think that those were really its weakest moments. Um I think any time the Zoinks River is mentioned, oh, God, it, that that was bad. Like it, it was the kind of thing where it, those moments where it really sort of pushes into like, "Hey, you like Scooby Doo, right?" Um, and the moments where it pushes into like, "Hey, you like Lovecraft, right?" Uh, and I think the thing that was really unfortunate is that uh, so often those came like at the end of a chapter, and I remember thinking about it where I I would noticed that I was enjoying the book a lot as I was reading it, but I wasn't really thinking very fondly of it in between times when I was reading. And I think it was because so often the chapters would end on, and then this thing from Lovecraft happened. And those were the moments that I really wasn't liking, because I liked it a lot more when it felt like an original thing that was pulling from those things, as opposed to when it felt like highly referential, highly derivative. Um, I think it's really too bad because I think that Cantero just sort of gets it wrong there with that notion of the thing that's going to get you to come back is when he references this thing that you already know as opposed to when he's just sort of like doing his thing. So originally the other thing that this – I've mentioned this before, but Corinne had mentioned this podcast to me like way long ago one shot and they did an episode that was scooby-doo in call of cthulhu and so and it was excellent it was just like really hilarious i still re-listen to it sometimes oh yeah scooby-doo pooch on the doorstep it's a classic yeah and so that was like immediately (laughs) what my mind jumped to when i saw the description of this and it's an interesting choice because like it's this is a story that is very solidly set in the lovecraft universe like it there's Arkham Asylum exists, Miskatonic exists, um, and I think if you have landmarks like that, you have to just say, yeah, this is, like, in Lovecraft's world. This is, it's more than... I think that's another thing that gives it kind of a fanfiction element, because you're not just saying, here is a world that is like the settings that Lovecraft described. You're actually taking, like, landmarks from his work and saying yeah, this is the exact same place, which is like, you know, it can be a hit or miss. It, I think it's just one thing that kind of was, it striked, it, it struck me as an interesting choice. I think it's hard to say how close things get to fan fiction with Lovecraft's work in particular because of the fact that he he made it possible for people to play in his world without any, like, legal restrictions and 
a lot of the mythos that we know to be Lovecraftian is actually people who wrote after Lovecraft um, contributing to the universe. So much of it is not actually by him. Yeah, it's so bizarre at this point to even think of it as like the Lovecraft universe because it's majority not him at this point, right? Even stuff that's considered canon. Yeah. It's just easier to call it that than like the Lovecraft and Friends universe. But it's like it's oh, an yeah, existing absolutely. it's an existing world in, in other words, though is what I'm trying to say. It's like it's not built from scratch. I mean not that anybody's you know, fictional universe is built from scratch, inspiration and whatnot. Yeah. But some are especially not built from scratch. And I think I mean just one of the other I mean going without going into spoilers, I think some specifically like relationshipy things that happened are and that that's kind of a telltale thing for like is this kind of fan fiction esque is do relationship things happen that a don't really like add to the story otherwise um or b they just kind of seem to have no like they're they're completely they're like in a weird bubble like maybe it does add a little bit but it's just it's it seems like it's being dwelled upon like a little bit too long I don't know if I'm describing that correctly. It'll be easier when we like start talking about specific scenes and whatnot. But so much fan fiction is written specifically just to discuss um, relationships between characters that usually aren't actually together, like an official ship uh, in the canon. So that'll be very interesting to look at once we start talking more specifically about it. Do we want to start segueing into spoilers then? I, I feel like we've... I, my general rule of thumb is once we've had three people say, well, this will be easier to talk about once we're post-spoilers, and I think we just hit two. I want to say, before we go to spoilers, uh, something about the Zoinks River, and that is... I feel like Zoinks River is kind of the first idea that Edgar Cantero had about this universe, and then he just could not let it go. It's like the, the Zoinks River feels to me like the thing that spawned this entire universe. And it became like his hill to die on. Yeah. Everybody was like, Edgar, please. Ed, can I call you Ed? Please. Take the Zoinks River out. It it's just it just detracts from the whole thing. It's unsubtle. We, like, we all get it and you don't need to name the river Zoinks River. The thing that would have been fine, like I, when it when everything happened in the beginning, and we're in the very first chapter, we're in the very beginning of the book, and the Zoinks River gets name-dropped, I'm like, oh, ha, huh, okay, yeah, I get it. Alright, fine. But it was a major landmark. Like, if, if he had just dropped the name once as, like, a reference that he really wanted to get in there or whatever, like, it would have been... I would have been able to let it go a lot easier, because, like, something like this, I feel like a lot of those references are just... they're just gonna happen. But they're like one-offs and that's it. But for it to for it to be important the whole time. They don't have to, though. Like, that, that's... I, I, I cannot stress enough to, to anyone who might be listening to this who wants to write a thing that is inspired by a thing they loved as a child. All the dumb references don't have to be in there. You don't have to do it. You're not obligated to. They're not good. You don't have to do it. Just because everyone else does it doesn't mean you have to do it. Be your own person. You do you. But just, oh my god, drop... Stop with, like, the the dumb bang you over the head like ah see i watched scooby-doo too like uh it's no it's bad it's so bad also ask your editor if you're actually being clever i feel like you know you're paying them ask, to tell you to ask st- multiple editors yeah maybe. ask a couple people make sure that you know clever check yourself before you ever wreck yourself there you go you you were you were you were committed at that point it had to happen <laughs> Yep. So, uh, actually, speaking of of that kind of notion of whether something is clever or not, um, I, I thought it was really interesting that um, at least. So, I'm, I'm going to get a little bit into like the physical copy of the book for a second. But at least in my edition, on the back of the book, there's like an extended quote from Rob Reed, who wrote uh, a book called Year Zero. Um, I think that this is a really interesting quote to pull for the back cover uh, because. I would say, as heavily indebted as this is to Lovecraft and Scooby-Doo, Year Zero, more than anything, is the book that this reminds me of. So I think it's very interesting that, like, the authors are, like, aware of each other to the extent that they're writing, you know, pull quotes for each other's books. Um, So for anyone not familiar, uh, Year Zero is a kind of a 
sci-fi parody slash satire of uh, music copyright law. Um, the base premise of the book is that a group of aliens sort of fall in love with Earth music, um, and they have sort of a culture that involves just sort of free sharing of art. Um, and then when uh, sort of like the, the trials surrounding Napster and music sharing come around, um, the aliens discover that uh, based on Earth law, the amount that they've copied and shared all of Earth's music would means that they are indebted to uh, record companies on Earth for more than the collective wealth of the universe. Um, and so because part of their culture is that they then need to abide by the laws of the culture that created the art, um, they are in fact indebted to Earth for this much. And so they figure that the only thing to do is to destroy the Earth to settle their debts. Um, and this is the premise of the book. And the protagonist is a copyright lawyer who needs to come and save the day by finding loopholes in copyright law. Um, it is very funny. I highly recommend it. John Hodgman reads the audiobook, and it's a great choice. Um, I'm in love with everything about this. Yeah, why didn't we do this for something ever? It's it's really good. I really enjoy it. I recommend it. Uh, just why is this the first awesome. I'm hearing of this, James? <laughs> I, I don't know. I guess I just assume that I've recommended it to everyone I know, because when I read it, I recommended it to everyone I do. But I, I guess I missed you. I'm sorry. But um, so it, the big reason, though, why why this reminds me of Year Zero is that both books are too clever by half. And both books, I would say, are kind of hit and miss with that cleverness. But just the the that base, like actual like talent for clever writing that that the author has and base like good idea that is the premise of the whole thing, I think, carries the entire novel like through to the end. Uh, I think that Year Zero arguably has more to say than Meddling Kids, but it's not, like, something particularly deep. Year, what Year Zero has to say is copyright law surrounding art is stupid. And it just kind of makes that point over and over again in progressively humorous ways. Um, and I think, then, that both books do the very clever thing of making it pretty clear early on that they don't have a lot to say. They just have a really good idea and they're going to just double down on that good idea. Um, and I think that that's one of the areas where both books are really successful. Um, like, I feel like you get a chapter into meddling kids and you know that there isn't going to be like, it doesn't feel like there is this really super strong message to the book. Like it has themes and it does a good job with those themes, but it, it doesn't seem to be making a point. But I normally I would levy that as criticism. But in this case, it, I feel like the book knows that. And just doubles down on, no, I have a clever idea for a book, and I'm just going to do the cleverest thing I can. And it doesn't always work, but I I don't know. I feel like it's a net positive. I don't know. It That was one of the things that I really sort of liked in it. It sets the stage for itself very well early on. You know exactly what you're getting into. I guess let's say, would you recommend the book? Yeah, I'd say yes. I'm not, I, it, it doesn't always work, but yes, I would say I recommend it. Yeah, pretty much the same boat. It's a very flat like if if I if the concept sounds even remotely appealing to you, you're probably going to enjoy this book. If you like Scooby-Doo and Lovecraft, then yes. I feel like if you don't like or you're not famil intimately familiar with at least one of them, or not even that intimately, but if you're if you would not classify yourself as a fan of either Scooby-Doo or Lovecraft that I think a lot of the humor and a lot of kind of just like references and stuff are not going to be worth your time. I don't know. I, I, I'd have a hard time recommending this to someone who was like, yeah, like I watched a few episodes of Scooby-Doo when I was a kid. I've never read any Lovecraft whatsoever. Um, because I feel like those are kind of essential elements, but to anybody who is fans of those things, then yeah. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I kind of agree that uh, I think this book would fall kind of flat if you weren't familiar with the sources of inspiration it's pulling from. Um, so I would recommend this to, as Cleo said, anybody with enough familiarity with both Scooby-Doo and Lovecraft to, to get it. I <clears throat> I guess for me it's just the, the nature of like Lovecraft's universe and that kind of stuff, like Stuff like this is really approachable, even for people who don't know anything about it. Like, I, I think if you don't know Lovecraft, I would still 
recommend this if you're okay. There's a base level of Scooby Doo required to like benefit from the cleverness of the book and a sliding scale of familiarity with Lovecraft. Fair to those people for whom that Venn diagram overlaps. I recommend this book. The thing that I'm really just trying to remember now is whether there are any sort of Lovecraftian ideas that uh, don't get explained because Kentaro assumes that you are familiar. And the big thing is, I, if there are explanations, I'm, I probably just glossed over them because I have read Lovecraft, so I don't need that. But that's the one thing where I'm just trying to remember if there's any point where like, it assumes you understand how, it, it, how the mechanics work. Um, no, I, I mean, the way I recall it, he he pretty effectively uses Carrie as, like, the straight man for a lot of this stuff. And so, like, the hardline, you know, scientist backgrounded book smart character is just constantly like, I refuse to believe something, insert Lovecraft here, could possibly be real. And then Nate's like, well, no, but XYZ thing, and we have to do it this way, and that stuff. So, like, I think he pretty, he manages pretty well to sort of explain everything without without making those assumptions. I'll say that the 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 introduction of certain concepts might uh, seem weird, I guess. They, it might, you know, you might like kind of cock your head to the side a little bit at some of the stuff. If you don't know Lovecraft at all, there's certain parts like when the when the the guy who this is the beginning scene of the book, so it's not really spoilers. When the guy under the mask who got arrested all those years ago starts chanting in the bathroom in the familiar words of the Cthulhu mythos, someone who doesn't know the Cthulhu mythos would might just be like, what the fuck is happening right now? While everybody else who knows Cthulhu is like, oh, shit. Like, I get it. I get what's going on here. So, I, yes, you'll get it eventually if you don't know Lovecraft, but I think that you'll miss a lot of those like initial reaction moments and you'll have to sort of like be lost for a bit and and then have it filled in for you after the fact. Whether or not that would detract from the overall like fun of the story is unknown because we on this podcast, we're all familiar with Cthulhu. So yeah, I think the other thing would be, and this is the other thing that I am curious about is whether the story stands up. If you don't appreciate the moments where Cantero twists the usual formulas, um, I don't want to, obviously I'm not going to list specific things, but, um, there are a handful of scenes where, uh, certain encounters I think are, it, certain expectations are played with. Subverted. Yeah. Thank you. I'm, I don't know. I'm bad at words today. Um, it's fine, but yeah, no, I, and I think that those moments were some of the really fun ones. And yeah, those are the other ones where I'm trying to think it's like, well, you know, I had an expectation for this scene because I'm familiar with Scooby-Doo and Lovecraft. And then the fact that something different happened made that scene really interesting. I wonder if that scene would be interesting if you didn't have those expectations. Anything else uh, non-spoiler related before we, before we make the call? Uh, yes, actually. I want to talk a little bit about, very briefly, about uh, the formatting of the book. And specifically how that translates to audiobook format. So, I listened to the audiobook for this, and I gotta say, I thought it was really good. I think that, uh, Cleo, do you remember the name of the, the woman who did the actual reading? Oh, I do not. I can look it up quick. Regardless, uh, she does a really nice job, um, just sort of embodying all the characters and, and you know, taking you through the story. I thought she was really good. I loved the voice that she did for uh, one of the characters that you meet. Um, later on in the story, so I'll bring this up again after the spoiler break. However, there was this particular thing that Cantero did, um, which when, like, a, a lot of times during conversation, where he would just... It was as though he was writing a, a script for a play, and he would put the, the speaking character's name just... It would be like... Uh, Andy, and then, like, colon, I imagine. And then, like, the words that Andy is saying. And then it would be uh, Nate, and then colon, and then the words that Nate was saying, and then Carrie, and then colon, and then the words that Carrie was saying. This, in audiobook format, got very old. <laughs> it was interesting the first couple of times, and it was something to endure for the majority of the rest of the book. Uh, so 
I think it I think that particular formatting choice works much better on paper than it does read aloud. The narrator's name is Kyla Garcia. Kyla Garcia. She did a wonderful job. I could see how that would translate particularly poorly to audiobook. Yes. Yeah. However, I think that the weird moments where he like broke the fourth wall and like gave like like weird meta commentary on stuff i think that was enhanced in audiobook format it felt a lot better to be spoken aloud than it i i imagine it was read because justin you were complaining about that in particular yeah i just i i feel like he it's just that like he was changing the format so frequently just that like he was sort of switching between doing a pretty typical narrative prose and occasionally doing this like this like play written style uh complete with stage directions and and then other like fourth wall breaks and stuff and it just i don't know it never really felt cohesive and therefore increasingly felt kind of frustrating to me i will say though some of the playing with form while not always amazing was i thought was always at least fun i i I found one of my favorite examples that i will read without context so no spoilers but um specifically the line fuck this andy spat at the intended end of the chapter um which follows a page break as though the chapter was going to end but then no new heading on the next page indicating the start of the next chapter i don't know it he's at the very least whether it always works or not i don't know but at the very least Kintero's having a lot of fun with this yeah i'll give it that i was that was one of the ones that i was like Normally, I would like, but because of the way the book had already made me feel about how he was doing fourth wall breaks and stuff, I like didn't really like. Like objectively, I would like a meta, like a meta joke like that. But for for whatever reason, it like didn't land for me. Oh, I was the exact opposite. I think in anything where he wasn't already doing that kind of playing, it would feel stupid um, and gimmicky. In this, where I feel like that's part of the structure of the book is that Kentaro is writing something that plays with the structure of like actual written narrative uh i think that's the thing that makes it work otherwise it would feel terrible oh yeah i mean if it came out of the if it was the first and only time he made a meta joke in the book like yeah that would feel awful i just i don't know i i didn't like his style and method of doing it that much and so things that i would have liked by somebody doing it better throughout a different book like Instead, I didn't like them because I was frustrated by his particular style. I think it's interesting that both uh, you and Corinne referred to the stuff as being like a play. I thought more than anything, it seemed more like a film. Because uh, a lot of even just like the the prose feels like it, he's moving a camera around rather than like stuff on a stage. It felt... So, yes, I agree he had a lot of stuff in there that felt very like film direction-y. But the particular reason I say it sounds like a play to me is because it was read aloud and I don't I don't picture film as reading aloud the stage directions along with the the dialogue I just picture the dialogue happening and then the other stuff happens for a play I imagined like a, a cold read of the first time you're going through a script and you're reading all the stage directions aloud that felt like that felt like a more natural like frame of reference even though the the film elements were much more prevalent I was thinking of it as a television script. Oh, all right. We all thought of it as a different kind of script. <laughs> because Scooby-Doo is television. It's fair. That's, that's the best foundation any of us have. That's a logical reason, Cleo. Good thing you're the only one who has one. But yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think a lot of that sort of like playing with writing, actually, I think this is worth talking about before the spoiler break. Uh, it really does play with a lot of that. There's a lot of scenes that are structured in sort of like initially confusing but then you get it once you realize that you're supposed to be imagining it it happening as though it were on a screen um where like he'll cut between two distinct but thematically related places um like every other line uh or things like that where in something like you would be watching filmed you're watching two events happening at different places simultaneously um it's it's an interesting thing yeah i can appreciate something like that when it doesn't always work but when they're at least trying i did like like that in particular thing of like jumping between scenes pretty frequently because i feel like it's something that people won't do often in books but can can sort of pay off in the same way it does in uh in film and television 
So um, I guess I'll start by sort of reiterating the current topic. This is meddling kids. Uh, next up is going to be Stranger Things Season 2, the entirety of Season 2. Um, and then after that will be uh, Oxenfree by Night School Games, and then we'll be summing the topic up all together. And then after that, we're going to be starting uh, what I guess now we're going to be announcing for the first time is going to be our our very last topic series. We're going to be winding down winding down the show uh, with what we figured would be sort of an appropriate ending topic, which is endings. Um, so for that, we're going to be reading uh, The Dark Knight Returns by Frank Miller. We're going to be watching Labyrinth, directed by Jim Henson, uh, and probably the only person who would stop me from suggesting that Labyrinth was conceived of entirely by David Bowie would be Jim Henson. So props to him for uh, pulling that joke away from me. Um, we're going to be playing Passage by Jason Rohr. Um, so I think it's going to be sort of a, a fun topic, and it'll be interesting to sort of look at endings as we're bringing all of all of this to a close. Um, I'm sure at the end of that we'll have something to say about the you know the series as a whole, but that's that's still a bit of a ways away. So right now we can focus on meddling kids. Uh, this is going to be our spoiler break for the novel Meddling Kids. Uh, if you don't want spoilers, come back next time when we're going to be talking about Stranger Things season two. Spoiler break. Cool. I got two things right off the bat. One. Do it. Tim is a terrible fucking name for a dog. Tim is a bad name for a dog. It's a people name, and it's not a dog name. You don't name a dog Tim, and it's bad. I've been hearing this for weeks. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it so much. And the predecessor dog was Sean. Sean is also a bad name for a dog. Sean is a people name, not a dog name. I don't like it. So I think I think this is the part where I have to confess that I don't hate Tim as a dog name. I also have to tell you that I named my childhood dog Zach, and I thought it was a great name for a dog. I called him oh, Zacky. He was a great dog, I and Zach it. was a great name. <laughs> Listen, the first like the first hour of listening I did in this book, where they were just name dropping Tim and Sean all over the place, and I was aware of three people who had been introduced as characters and one who was dead, and all, none of them were Tim or Sean. And two of them were women. I was really, really confused. Also, one of them went by Andy. So in my, for the first like hour of this book, there were five men and I didn't know what to do about that. And But two of the characters were definitely women. It was very weird. <sighs> Tim is a bad name for a dog. All right. Thing number two that I wanted to say, because that was the first one. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I don't really have strong opinions on dog names. So I'm about, yeah, I'll, I'll take that. I just I wanted to I just wanted to get that out of the way. No, that's right, so good. Solid, number, solid notes. Thing number two. I want to talk about what I thought was the strongest part of the entire book. Um, literally, I, I think I I don't know who I said this. So I said this to one of you guys. It was me. Um, I think that I remember this conversation. Yeah. Okay. I think that uh, uh, I think that this part of the book happened, and then I think that you know, despite everything, the book was only downhill from there. Not in a bad way, just, like, it could not top the the strength of this, like, whole pa uh, passage uh, or section. Uh, and that was the, uh, the first time that everybody went into the caves. I think that that whole sequence, uh, starting with, you know, getting all their stuff with, getting all their stuff from Al and, like, going in and ending with, like, bursting into the mansion i think that was without a doubt the best part of the entire book i hadn't really thought about what i think the best part of the entire book is but yeah thinking back on it i it's certainly a strong contender for me i i would have to like think about the rest of it but yeah i think that the 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 tension that was maintained throughout that entire part was really 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 strong i think that the the surprises that we got uh exploring the cave and the creepiness of it and the horror like the horror was never quite was never too strong but it was creepy especially when they got to the end and there was they 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 got to the big lovecraftian you know vault hidden under the earth like that was that was spooky like this was the the book that was part of the book that was legitimately spooky to me um 
And I think that one of the other things I, I noticed was that in this part of the book, it was not yet overdone that everybody had somehow all the time in the world to rummage through all of the items in their inventory which was this weird thing that I noticed throughout the book. Like, there was a lot of to-do about the stuff that they had all the time, and somehow they always had time to think about their stuff. And in this section, it felt good and natural, whereas in later sections, it felt like it had been done a few too many times. Um, and also, the whole section ended with getting them back into the mansion, which I think that was the first time they had been back in the mansion in the whole book. And that was... Uh, a really strong, like, like escalation of tension of like getting them back into the mansion the first time. So, bar like this, this to me, hands down, the book never got better than that entire series of chapters. Yeah, that that definitely was a really good sequence. Now that like now that you're prompting me to go back and like think about it that way, yeah, I I agree. Were there any other sort of standout moments for for other people uh, for me the, it's the other stuff that was just that was just kind of fun like i think i think the most it's very brief but the most fun i had with any individual sequence was when they decided to blow up the chemical plant and it's just a lot of matter of fact talking about detonators and explosives and they've got captain al and and the one deputy from the police department and everybody's kind of like yeah this is great this is fun the whole time I was just thinking, like, this is environmental terrorism, and, like, people take that really seriously, and you're all going to be arrested. <laughs> like, that's that's all I could think. I was like, you're doing this, like, oh, you're saving other people. This will be fun. Also, haha, get back at those mean corporations. Also, you're all going to jail. Like, you're all going to jail. You're, I have no faith that you guys created a bomb that is untraceable. They're going to, you know, they're going to get the bomb squad out here. They're going to, you know, they're going to discover the, the source and the accelerant and all that sort of stuff. They're going to track it down to you. They're like, I don't know this. I don't, they were being so freaking casual about it as though they weren't leaving evidence all over the place. That's how people, that's how people were in 1990. Oh God. It's really stressful. <laughs> yeah. I definitely feel like that, that scene feels sort of, very casually dropped in considering the weight of the moment which i think itself is referenced in the moments like what we're doing is is like actually terrorism like yeah copper seed is like yeah like this is this is real terrorism and if we're caught this is bad yeah so let's all put our hands on the detonator get all our fingerprints all over that detonator as though you know as though the the fbi isn't gonna find it when the goddamn fbi comes to investigate this instance of environmental terrorism <sighs> Then again, the book uh, does pretty pretty frequently uh, uh, push into the bounds of, like, like, it pushes outside of the bounds of realism. And I don't just mean with Lovecraftian monsters. Yeah. I mean when they tied a rope to a chair and pulled a dude in a straitjacket through an entire building and somehow that worked. And he didn't die in the process. That's the Scooby-Doo influence for sure. Yeah cartoon physics for me it was for me it was definitely andy just casually dropping the fact that she broke herself out of jail she's like yeah no i just escaped i was in jail for a couple weeks and i was like now i'm done with this well and then some eventually i think copperseed like makes sort of an oblique reference to that and sort of suggests there was like more going on there but then we never really get more about that i, I remember him saying that he knew it had happened because he like did background checks on all of them after they showed up and then I, I know they drop at the end that, like, Copperseed's supposed to do something to make it go away. You can also so make that, that environmental like, terrorism anymore, charge go away, Copperseed. Like, I, I feel like these are all things that fall under that, like, umbrella that I was sort of talking about before the spoiler break of, like, this is not going to be a a serious book. Um, that that same kind of notion of just, like, it's it's too clever by half and it's not going to let the the bounds of realism or sanity um hold it down um look i could accept cartoon uh, cartoon logic and cartoon physics i can deal with that i largely didn't have a problem with that what i did have a problem with was terrorism <laughs> <laughs> i Which, had a problem um, like, totally valid, i, I want to say <laughs> i had a problem with how that became the best solution <laughs> They had an entire group of, like, 
pretty intelligent people. And somehow environmental terrorism was the quickest and easiest way to evacuate the town? Like, what? In what world is that the best solution? I don't know. I was... <sighs> but if you just put cartoon in front of it, it's fine. I, I got a, you know, that, that one particularly stuck in my craw, I guess. Yeah, I, this book, it, it definitely did push my ability to suspend disbelief in a number of, of segments. That may, that was probably the most egregious, I will say. <laughs> <laughs> I still had fun with it, though. Also pushes the bounds of reality that any sane person would name their dog Tim. I... We've never received any kind of fan communication. I, I want to throw that out there as premise. This is my Marley was dead moment. We're going to get a lot from people who have named their dog Tim. Okay. People who aren't even listening to the podcast are going to be like, you know what? Someone out there is saying it's bad to name their dog Tim. I should tweet at somebody. All right. You're wrong, everybody who's named your dog Tim. Come at me, bro. I'm ready. I'm ready. And on that note, I, <laughs> I like the scene where the fish people first came out of the lake. <laughs> I, I actually really agree with that. That one, that one stuck with me a lot. What did you like about it, Cleo? It was one of the more genuinely creepy scenes for me because, like, it, we're still in the realm of the unknown. Like, we don't know exactly what's going to be the main threat. I mean, we know, like, they experienced some fucked up shit when they were there as kids and, like, they heard scratching on the dungeon walls and all this stuff happened. And that was like the first time we actually see, I think like a physical threat. Um, and it's hard because with anything Lovecraft inspired, the whole thing is like, Oh, what you don't see is scarier than if you just like imagine something. And I do like genuine, generally believe that's true. Um, but I think he, Edgar Cantero did a good job of pulling off like a pretty creepy situation. Like the, the fish people seem there's an official name for them. I already forget. Official name for them. And I heard, fuck myself. I hate that. I hate it. I just made a pun. Um, I don't remember the name of them, but... Uh, the, well, the, 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 the folks called them the Weezers. I, they had a the Weezers, they had an yeah. actual name. I, I don't think. think they ever... They're like the, the cult of Thetagoa or whatever. Like At one point, they were referred to as like Thetagoa Lights or something, but I don't think that was intended to be like their name. Mm. I'll say it ain't so... All right. All right. <laughs> but yeah, I thought it was like, it was, and there was a the whole thing where it was fog covered and everything is creepy. And when it, Tim was at risk, and I don't like dogs being at risk. And it adds like more tension for me than usually if like people are at risk. Uh, but I thought, I don't know, that was like a really nice reveal scene for me. Um, definitely like genuinely spooky, at least for me. Yeah, I mean, I was trying to think of contenders for other, like, scenes that really stuck with me the way, uh, the way the mind scene did, like, like Corinne had pointed out. And that, I think, really is the other one. Um, just, like, starting from Andy waking up into this creepy tableau and, like, immediately knowing something is wrong and, and the way that scene goes and how the reveal happens and just all of it, like, I, I think you really nailed that. Uh, I was going to say, I also really like how all of the, like, how how a majority of the, the, the creepy effects, the, the symptoms of the core, you know, horror element, I guess, all got scientific explanations. It, you know, it it's not like, it's not, oh, it's hard to breathe and it's foggy because of magic. It's, no, these, 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 you know, the, this lake and these creatures, they emit CO2. And that makes it hard to breathe. But your body doesn't realize you're suffocating. I thought that was really neat. Yeah, it was a nice balance between um, actual explanations, but also there is an old god. Yeah. But yeah, no, I, I completely agree. It's it, it didn't leave just like everything to just like, oh yeah, supernatural shit. Um, yeah, no, I agree. I thought that was good. Uh one thing that I, I really liked about that scene, so it like everything, certainly like everything like Cleo and Justin that you've said, um, but the thing that I think I liked most about it is that at the end of it, they kill one of the things, which to me seemed like one of those really big moments of subversion in something that is going for that kind of like it Lovecraftian horror. 
it, usually one of the tenets of that is you can't kill the thing. Yeah. Also in Scooby-Doo, right? Like, that's, like, if you're, it's kind of an in-between thing. Yeah, exactly. You don't kill shit in Scooby-Doo. But, yeah, I, I thought that, that it... Everything about the book felt like it was setting up that scene to be the kind of thing where they, like, escape by the skin of their teeth or, like, they lose a bunch of resources in that. It's that, like, that first encounter or, like, something happens and then the creatures all go away. Um, But to have Nate show up and just kill one of them with a shotgun was very unexpected. I feel like that was the kind of thing that... um, it, that's the kind of scene that I feel makes the the heavy influences worth it, is that you you have these expectations set by the other thing, and so often those expectations are fulfilled. It makes all those moments when your expectations are fulfilled worth it to have those couple where your expectations are subverted. Um, and I really, I really liked that. Yeah, Lovecraft says you see the monsters, you die. Scooby-Doo says you see the monsters, you run. And then Meddling Kid says you see the monster, you shoot it in the head with a shotgun and it dies. Yeah, and on one hand, I I do have that kind of gut instinct of just like, ugh, yeah, like gritty reboot of whatever. It's Scooby-Doo, except they can kill the monsters. But in this moment, it feels like it feels like it was justified. You know, this wasn't just the like, oh, look at how hardcore Meddling Kids is, because... I would say meddling kids is, on average, not particularly hardcore. Like that's not what it's here to do. That's I mean, it's not like it's not Scooby Doo Monster Hunter, right? Like yeah. they're not these like hardened warriors. They're like terrified twenty somethings, and after killing that thing, everybody is like deeply, deeply affected, right? Which I think I think works very well in its favor. Yeah. And I think that the other thing that, that helps is it it, because part of the premise of Scooby-Doo is that the person who is dressed up as a monster isn't actually trying to hurt anybody. They are trying to keep you away from where they're digging for gold in the old amusement park or whatever. Um, it, it sets like a nonviolent precedent. But as soon as you introduce the notion of the monsters are actively trying to do you harm um, and that that is the like we're not in Kansas anymore moment of the shift from the blight and summer detective club to like actual adults dealing with shit or in that like sort of pivotal moment in between the shift from like innocent kids to like traumatized kids. Um, I think having that notion of like, yeah, no, you need to be able to fight back against stuff. And if they are going to be attacking you there, there needs to be some back and forth or else the book's not going to make sense. Um, I think it really earns that in a way that a lot of stuff like this I don't think would. I guess I should say I don't think does. It is probably the more fair way to say that. And this is, you know, going into our next topic where we are going to read something that is absolutely gritty for the sake of being gritty in The Dark Knight Returns. Like, we're we're going to see a lot of the other end of this. Um, but I, I think that this one does does it really well. All right, so after they kill this fish creature, um, Carrie has just a panic attack, a very bad one. Um, and uh, the and you know, over the course of uh, calming her down from the panic attack, there's more uh, will they, won't they interplay between Andy and Carrie, which has been going on throughout the entire book at this point to the to the point where. Nate and his imaginary friend Peter have a, you know, I can see what's happening. They don't have a clue moment together in the, in the car. It was weird when they just broke out into song. Yeah, yeah. very strange. Um, they started singing about how, you know, the two of them are going to fall in love and here's the bottom line there, whatever. Uh, so, <laughs> so, the, you know, the, this, this romantic angle had been set up between the two of them and was very obvious. Andy was very clearly into Carrie and had been for years. Um, and when Andy was calming Carrie down from her, her panic attack, it was, you know, this, this kind of like nice moment between the two of them. Um, and then when Carrie finally calmed down, Andy kissed her, which was not so nice because that's just a terrible, don't kiss people. Like when they're, don't, don't kiss people for the first time 
when they're like just barely recovered from a panic attack. That's not good. Don't don't do that. It, it sounds like very specific advice, but like apparently people need it. Cause... Yeah, yeah. Don't do that. It's bad. It's not good. Like you you don't get to you don't get to like force somebody who is who is like in a in a not well state to have to then process your emotions. That's just mean and rude. So don't kiss people who are recovering from panic attacks. But despite all of this advice, Andy kisses Carrie in that moment. And uh, Carrie, who I will repeat again, has is just recovering from a panic attack. And in my opinion, has neither the, the reason or the faculties to lie. Well, maybe the reason, but does not have the faculties to lie in this moment, says, I'm straight. And in my mind, as a queer woman... That, to me, said, okay, that's the end of that romance. She said she's straight. The end. You know, that's the point where, as a queer woman, you back the fuck off. Because that's just what you're taught to do when you grow up, you know, gay. As soon as someone isn't into girls, you just put your hands up and you walk away and you say, okay, um, I'm done there. Bye-bye. That's it. Uh, However... This apparently was not the case because the two of them got together at the end of the book, which is very weird. I mean, I enjoyed the romance, but I did not like that. I did not like that whole scene and interaction. It it read very strange to me as somebody who is familiar with how, you know, gay women interact and is also familiar with how fan fiction works you've either not you've either gotta you know not have your one character proclaim they're straight or you have to not make it seem like they are telling the truth in the moment and you know carrie both said i'm straight and and there was no indication to the reader that she was just lying her face off even if andy didn't pick up on it you know what i mean like there was no there was none of that, and I did not like that. It it struck me as very strange. Well, even at the ending, like it one of the things that was weird is that so <sighs> Carrie and Andy are together, but they're not in like a sexual relationship, it seems like. And Carrie is like, I'm sorry that this isn't like how it is when you're like if you're with like another woman because we're not like doing things that you would be doing if you were with somebody else. And Andy is at first like that's fine like basically and, and maybe that means that like for Carrie this can't be like she doesn't feel a sexual attraction to Andy she like really likes her and loves her and maybe potentially is even in love with her in a sense depending on like I don't know but it's clear that she's not currently and maybe never will be sexually attracted to her because she, or she's not comfortable having sex with her at least but then Andy ends it on like oh no that's okay. By the time that, like, I, I don't want to have sex with you until, like, you're begging for it and I'm gonna, we will do it when, like, you're begging for it. And there's, like, this assumption that, like, there will come this time when Carrie is gonna be, like, wildly sexually attracted to her. And that made me really super, super uncomfortable because, like, don't say you're okay with something if the answer is, oh, I'm okay for it for now because I know that later you will be. Like, that's yeah. really fucked up. Yes. I, I agree. It... I don't know. I it just it it didn't read to me that that Carrie really reciprocated Andy's feelings in in that way and it that made it really weird when they, you know, quote unquote got together at the end. Yeah. I don't know. It it didn't seem like it didn't seem like an actual like relationship was set up. It seemed like Carrie just wanted to have her friend with her and Andy was going to be taken advantage of because of her feelings. I don't know. Maybe they were like in love with each other, like you said, Cleo, in some way, but it was weird. It was weird and, and not, you know, great at a, at a lot of moments. So. 
Yeah, I do have to say, though, if anyone fucking kissed me right after I had a panic attack, like, especially if they've never kissed me before, I would fucking punch them in the face. It's like there was some, right? there was a meme going around about like, oh, here is like how you, you help somebody who's having a panic attack. You need to put your arms around them and squeeze it and squeeze them really tight. And they're going to fight back at first, but then they'll settle down and it's really going to help them and release all those good brain chemicals. And then there was like a comment underneath, like, if anyone fucking did this to me, like, they'd be dead. And... Being a person who does have panic attacks, having many, many friends who also suffer from panic attacks, that is the last, like, any kind of unwanted or, like, any kind of physical contact that isn't 500% clear consensual is no. Just, like, no, don't. It's a horrible idea. I guess the the point is that Edgar Quintero, a man, had a difficult time uh, writing a unproblematic relationship between two women, uh... And while the majority of the time I I enjoyed the sort of, you know, will they, won't they, pining kind of aspects of it, um, it didn't 100% feel like it paid off at the end because of all these missteps that happened along the way. And because Carrie just didn't seem like a gay woman by the end of the book. And that's my thoughts on the romance. The end. All right. Um... Was there anything else that we wanted to get into before we call it for this episode? Yes. The villain. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I guess we should probably probably talk about the villains. Because, uh, yeah, there was one thing that I wanted to bring up, which sort of leads into that anyway, which is this, uh, on top of the sort of typical subversions of of our expectations on a couple of fronts, there are also some, you know, surprises and reveals and that kind of thing when it came to who the villain is and, and red herrings and, and this kind of stuff. Uh, how did you guys, like, how did you guys like how that whole sort of thing played out, right? Well, I have a couple thoughts on this. Sorry to keep talking, but I have a couple thoughts on this. One, uh, I loved Dania DeBowen loved her. I love the way that the the person who did the audiobook uh, did her voice. I love the way she portrayed her. I thought she was delightful. Um, I did not like Edgar Cantero's choice of motivation for Dania de Bowen, uh, which was for for summon, you know, for wanting to summon an elder god, which was I'm a mortal and bored. I felt that that wasn't great. And also uh, all of the twists and turns in the reveal of who was who and who was the reincarnation of what and all of this stuff happened in the the final like quarter of the book, I'll say, where where I was not super uh, I didn't super like the the sort of climax of the story because it just kind of felt like a lot of things kept happening, and that's. It didn't, it didn't, especially compared to the first trip through the mines that was like, had such a clear purpose and such a, you know, and all the twists were really good and it it just felt really good. The final, the actual climax of the story felt, fell flat to me because it just was a series of events that just kept happening and then twists happened and I didn't care because five twists had happened the last chapter. Yeah, I, I'd actually agree with that. I think that um, uh, I think that the book does a really a much better job at building that kind of like tension and actual like engagement uh, in like the first two thirds, three quarters. Uh, I had fewer issues though with the um, just she's immortal and bored. Uh, largely though, because I think that anytime you have someone who is actively trying to summon an elder god, uh, I don't think anything has ever given me a super convincing reason as to why like that seems like a good idea. Because I feel like everything makes it pretty clear that this is a bad idea. And then you need someone who's just like, all right, I understand that this is a bad idea. But hear me out. What if I did it? And I don't know. I, I feel like Immortal and Bored was kind of like about as good as anything else. So I that one didn't bother me as much. Yeah, I suppose. I like, guess It kind of almost felt... I don't know, it, it's like as justifiable as it gets. Is yeah. how I felt just because it. I don't like just because I think there's no justifiable reason to summon an elder god doesn't mean I should take it out on 
Edgar Cantero not being able to find a justifiable reason to summon an elder god. <laughs> I yeah, I I feel like I feel like Immortal and Board kind of fits with like the tone of the rest of it, which is like sort of wacky and goofy, and also just like sort of plain and in your face. It's just like eh, because why not? And but yeah, I. I Yes, I, I think that you put it really well. It, just because there's no reason doesn't mean that it's his fault that there's no reason. Um, <laughs> yeah. But but no, I so that one that one didn't bother me as much. But yeah, I agree that like towards the end when just like stuff just starts happening, um, that sort of becomes a bit less fun. I thought that uh, I, I thought that the um, the bits where like Nate's going around and he's finding like the parts of the pentacle, uh, I thought that that was sort of the most interesting twist that happened there with regards to like the greater scheme um yeah i think that's like where it really tipped right like he flees and he's in the boat and he finds the stuff and that was like interesting i was into that and then after that is where it kind of tipped over into twist 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 action 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 done i the thing for me that i think did it was that finding the bits to the pinnacle seemed like the last thing that felt like a horror story um and after that it was a just like fantasy romp. Sorry, I was just gonna say after that, uh, four teens and a dog ran into several different doors and then out of them, and a monster ran around also. Well, uh, well, Betty Hill played. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, and so I, I'm not even necessarily opposed to that because I would say that overall this this book is almost more of a fantasy romp than it is a, a horror story. But uh, I think that when it is tense and uncomfortable it it can actually do a really good job at that and i think that finding the bits of the pentacle was like the last bit of that um i think it gives sort of like a some good tying up of the loose ends of just stuff that i thought was really effective earlier like finding the tooth in the tree i I would say also he does a really good job early on as he sort of slowly reveals like what happened during that last case you know when it's just like oh but like what about like the dead animals and you're like what about the dead animals and just like it that that way of introducing them makes it feel very scary because you have very little information. It's sort of it, he sort of puts that like it's scarier because you can't see it stuff that you don't get with the the fish creatures that he introduces in person very early and puts it on just some of the occult stuff. And I think it's a really I I, I thought that was effective. You know I like that a lot. Um, and this feels like a good payoff to that. But yeah, I, I agree that sort of after that it kind of gets a bit out there. Um, Though I did have some fun with the the scene where where she's like explaining the whole plan, it on one hand obligatory, on the other hand, I feel like okay obligatory as far as the obligatory set pieces go. I thought that was a fun one. I mean, I, I liked getting the Watchmen moment. Like I I enjoyed the ex- obligatory exposition followed by no, I'm not actually this stupid. I did it already. Yeah, that was. That was pretty good. Yeah. But, but yeah, I, I would agree, though, that, that the end of the book definitely sort of goes a bit off the rails. Um, not always in a bad way. Sometimes in a way that feels fun, but off the rails nonetheless. Honestly, the, the real problem was, like, if, if Edgar Cantero had picked, like, 15 of the 20 wacky things that happened as opposed to all 20 of them i feel like it could have been an actual like good ending it's just it was too many things yeah was the problem i'd agree with that you know like one one less exploding minecart moment and like one one less less... like helicopter fire yeah, helicopter firing a missile into the mansion. Yeah. Maybe one less of those. Maybe less. Maybe one less sequence of Dania de Bowen fighting an endless wave of fish monsters with a sword and then getting <laughs> yeah. blown up by a missile. Maybe without that, the end of the book would I, I will admit, the ultimate payoff of that scene just being the epilogue where, <laughs> where Dania climbs out of the rubble half, like burned away and just says shit did i miss it like i'm not gonna lie i enjoyed that moment probably more than i should have like it wasn't actually a great moment i think if we had if our last view of dania de bowen had been andy's last view of dania de bowen i i feel like it would have also been completely like fine and it would have it would have saved us from you know 
3 to 17 wacky bits that I could have lived my life without having shoved into the final 100 pages of a book. Yeah. yeah. I I would also say having what was his name? Ashen Fox, the uh the <laughs> shaman from the like brief aside, you know, 200 pages previously having been possessing the dog the whole time and that's why he is like of above average intelligence. Like I I had already bought into just like yeah, it's a smart dog. It's Scooby Doo. But yeah, that I it's I like read I've mostly read this book on the subway and I got to the very end of the epilogue on my last subway trip. So like I read I read up to like right before that reveal and then when I sat down to finish the book, I finished it with just that reveal and I was like I was like literally dumbfounded. Like I was, I, I've never been like more unsatisfied. I think with the the resolution of a plot thread than I was in that moment. One thing I will say though, I, I think that Kentaro kind of makes even pretty clear in his writing that he's very much concerned with tying up loose ends and like having everything sort of meet back again at the end and closing those circles. Um, and clearly, that is something that is important to him. There's a handful of bits in the book where he like really even like lampshades that right um and i will say to his credit many of those it, he he does he does do that you know it to my memory there are very few like loose ends that need tying up things like that it they don't always come back in like a super in a way that feels great but he he does manage to put a little bit of a bow on just about everything that I can think of. It, it sort of harkens back to that, like, it's neat that everything has, like, an actual scientific explanation or is explicitly just, like, yep, it's a god, uh, or yep, like, it's a fish monster, but it's, like, it's a fish monster that behaves according to some understandable laws. Um, so I, I kind of chalk this up to that as well, where it's just, it, it seems like that was one of the things that maybe bugged him about Scooby-Doo. It's just like, but then why is this dog so smart? It's like, oh, possessed by a shaman. <laughs> you know what other entity also has its own internal laws? Homeland Security. <laughs> <laughs> and with that plot that Red tied up, I think it's time we uh, wrapped up this episode. <laughs> Anyone else have any burning, burning topics to touch on? Because uh, if so, I think you might have to wait for topic. We're not beating that for an ending. <laughs> Very briefly, I just want to say I really loved when Dania DeBowen was like, haha, you bought into the idea that I infected you with my malicious soul? No, I just described any 20-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. That, <laughs> that was, was a good moment. <laughs> that was a good moment to the, to the obligatory yep. reveal. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> it's the last thing I wanted to say. All right. With that. Uh, this has been our episode on Edgar Quintero's Meddling Kids. We're going to be meeting up with some more meddling kids in our next episode, which is going to be Stranger Things Season 2. Uh, I don't... Well, we haven't really decided yet, but I don't think we're going to go super far into Season 1 as far as catch-up goes. I think that we're going to try and keep it pretty strictly to Season 2, lest we... Uh, I don't know, lest we end up with some kind of super episode. If you're interested in Season 1, we did that, uh, like, a year ago when it came out. Um, so go check out that episode first if you want to. But uh, next up going to be Stranger Things Season 2. Um, yeah. And until then, thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Read, Watch, Play. If you want to help us out, the best thing you can do is tell a friend about the show. You can also rate and review the podcast on iTunes. If you want to find us on social media, you can follow us at RWP Podcast on Twitter and like us at facebook.com slash RWP Podcast. 